Mark Twain is famous for his snarky comments about all of life. And he may have said what I consider to be the most profound statement about Scripture ever by a non-believer. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Wow. That's a powerful truth that I think most of us can identify with. One of those truths that bothered Samuel Langhorn Clemens was that of original sin. The Bible teaches that people sin because we are sinners. That's hardly complimentary. But, if you don't mind my saying so, every rational parent doesn't take long after the birth of their beautiful little cherub to realize he or she is, in fact, a sinner. Twain's contemporary, G.K. Chesterton, also famous for a bit of snark now and again, once noted, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Amen. In fact, beginning here, beginning with the sinfulness of human beings is the safest place to start if you plan on any kind of endeavor with any human being anywhere, anywhere. Might even be wise now and again for any endeavor that you plan on including yourself in to realize that yes, we are sinners and therefore sin. As it turns out, according to Paul, the safest place to begin understanding the good news of Jesus Christ is that I am, in fact, a sinner. If you are going to hope in the good news, you need to understand that you and I and every other mother's child is a sinner. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23 today, but I want to begin where we were last week, starting in verse 15, to get some context for the whole. Verse 15, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. 
Last week, you remember, we saw that Christ is supreme in all of creation. He holds creation together at the atomic level. Christ is also supreme at the new creation, the church. He holds us together at the universal level. Red and yellow, black and white. We are one in Christ. And today we are going to see that the supreme Christ is also the sufficient Christ. We are going to see that He holds us together individually so that you and I will be filled with the hope that is necessary to trust the promises of God and to love those God puts near us so that we can rejoice and we can make a difference because we love the people God puts near us. To this end, we will see in this passage that you and I can hope. We can trust the good news. We can hope in the good news. Towards that end, we're going to find the good news in our passage Paul, as Paul outlines it here. First of all, we were alienated. Then we find out that we are reconciled by God. Then we learn that God keeps us as those who are reconciled. We're going to learn that the good news is for everybody, everywhere. And then lastly, part of the good news we're going to see today is that God uses us. He uses me and you to spread this hope that this world so desperately needs. This is the hope that we have based upon this passage. So let's look at it one at a time. Verse 21, Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's the truth. You were alienated. You were estranged from God, separated from Him because of sin. Now, original sin is the idea that because you and I are children of Adam and Eve, therefore we too are sinners. Dogs give birth to dogs. Cats give birth to cats. Sinners give birth to sinners. Therefore, every man, woman, and child since Adam and Eve is (coughs) also a sinner and therefore estranged, separated, alienated, from God. Now, because we are sinners, we sin. You and I and everyone else is born with a nature that is bent away from God. We are therefore hostile to Him in our attitudes and our actions. And because we are hostile to God, we do evil deeds. Our choices that we make widen the gap between us and the holy judge of the universe. And so, we need reconciliation. Praise Jesus for verse 22. He, God the Son, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now, If you want to be mocked in this culture, if you want to be vilified by everyone around you, all you have to do is whisper, we are sinners. 
because our culture doesn't want to be reminded about it. But it is most necessary for us to recognize that we are sinners. And in fact, this insanity that our culture suffers from for most of the world, and I'm talking about non-Christians here, recognize that we are, in fact, bent away from God and we are hostile in our attitudes and actions. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see this. So, if you choose to come to terms with the fact that you and I and everybody else are sinners, you will have taken the first step towards having the kind of hope that won't be extinguished. Having the kind of hope that will carry you through this life and into the next. It's because only the sick call a doctor. Only the alienated call a savior. And everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are we saved? What, what is the image that Paul uses here in this passage? He talks about reconciliation. He says, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You see, the wages of sin is death. What you earn because you are a sinner and therefore sin is alienation from God. Separation from the only source of life that exists on this planet. And you earn this alienation... And if this alienation is confirmed by your physical death, you will be separated from him forever. Fortunately, God the Son took upon himself this payment and he died for those who would trust him. The Bible teaches that God wants to destroy all sin. And so what he does is he pours out his wrath on that sin. And when he does that pouring out of his wrath, if that sin is still accounted to you, then you too will be destroyed forever apart from him. But if you trust that Christ absorbed that wrath of God for you on the cross, then you will forever be free from God's wrath, His steady, intense hatred of sin. Paul says, Jesus absorbed in His body of flesh by His death God's wrath, God's steady, intense hatred for sin. And this is why Paul could say, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We need to catch what's going on here. This reconciliation is divided into kind of two parts. The redemption that Paul was talking about earlier in the chapter, this forgiveness of sins, and this justification or this crediting of righteousness, or as Paul describes it here, this presenting us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It takes both of these sides that Paul is talking about here as reconciliation. The forgiveness of sins and the crediting of righteousness. And my friends, this is good news. You and me, sinner that we are, all it takes is the request, Lord, save me. You don't even have to know all the words that I'm describe, using to describe here. Just, Lord, save me. And then you can hope in this Good news. 
My friends, if you are a Christian, if you are one who has turned away from your sin and turned to the supreme and sufficient Christ, then this has already happened. You, like me, remain a sinner. Our flesh is still bent away from the Lord. But you are also a saint. Your soul desires righteousness, however imperfectly. Your heart longs for experiential rightness with God, however imperfectly. Your mind longs to know God better, however imperfectly, so that you can love Him and trust Him more. This is good news. And you, right where you're at, can hope in it forever. But on the other hand, there are some in here who don't believe this. And you haven't yet acknowledged that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. You haven't admitted the fact that by birth and by choice, you are one that is turned away, that you have dirty hands and a dirty soul. But you, too, can hope in the good news You can place your hope in the fact that you can be saved from the wrath of God. His intense, steady hatred of sin. This is good news worth hoping in. Amen. Now, so much for the easy part. We're going to get to verse 23 in a minute. But before we do, there's two kinds of big issues going on in verse 23. And I want to introduce the first one by introducing a theme that we find throughout the New Testament. There's this kind of repetition going on from beginning to end of this idea that we need to understand before we get to verse 23. So allow me to begin by going to 2 Corinthians 13.5 where Paul commands his readers, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Paul exhorts his readers in Corinth and his readers in Santa Maria, California to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. Why? To see if we really are believers or if we are just fooling ourselves. Now this is exceedingly important for every man, woman, and child because of the scariest passage in the entire Bible. This is the scariest verse in the whole Bible is found in Matthew chapter 7 verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So raise your hand if you have cast out more than, say, ten demons. Many mighty works? Anybody? Anybody? Many mighty works? No? Well, if these guys can't get into heaven, how do you and I have any hope? Unless, of course, it's not about casting out demons or many mighty works. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something that we can ask ourselves to see if it's true of us. Now, there are numerous passages in the New Testament that trouble folks. 
They seem to indicate, these passages seem to indicate that you need to do something in order to be saved. You must repent. You must believe. You must love Jesus. You must love those who are near you. You must do good works. You must persevere. Holy smokes! What am I going to do about all this? That seems like a big list. But on the other hand, we see other passages in the New Testament that teach that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace so that we can't boast. We are saved by grace so that it's not by works. We are saved by grace so that Christ is honored above all else. We are saved by grace so that others will praise Jesus and not us. So which is it? Are we saved by doing these works or are we saved by grace through faith? Now, the solution I'm going to offer to this is one that has been believed by Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people for 2,000 years. The Reformation emphasized it and we continue to believe it now. But, in fact, if you ever hear me ever say anything new, fire me because it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. If it's not true, then it's... If it's new, then it's not true. But what we see here in these difficult passages are not requirements that we need to do so that we can earn favor with God so that He's happy with us because we did this or we didn't do that. What we see in these passages are what I like to call test verses. These are verses that we can read and we can ask ourselves before the Lord and see, am I the kind of person who is in fact saved? Do I trust Christ and Him alone for my salvation? Do I wish to honor God more than myself? Do I do good works so that others will see how much I value Jesus more than stuff? If the answer to these questions, however imperfectly, is yes then you have good, solid evidence that you belong to Jesus. Because we live in a tough world. We live in a hard world to live in. Our body chemistry, whether or not we got enough sleep last night, whether or not our mama potty trained us right, and a host of other reasons when may start to convince us that I've lost my salvation or I've never had it to begin with. Did a decision that I made 28 years ago really save my soul forever? That's a legit question. Now, I, for one, don't base my hope for heaven based on a prayer that I prayed all by myself laying on my bed one night when I was 17 years old. If I did base my salvation on that, then every time I ate something that disagreed with me, or every time I didn't get to eat enough, or every time I didn't get my way, or every time I sinned knowingly and willfully, then I would be scared to death that I was not saved. That is, in fact, how I lived for about seven years of my Christian life. But our gracious, loving God does not want us to live that way. And so, he gives us these test passages. And 1 Corinthians 1.23 is one of those. Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Again, if you read it as something you must do, you'll drive yourself nuts. 
But let me give you a little bit of Greek grammar. In Greek, they had what were called classes of conditionals. They had different ways of using the word if, and depending on how they used it, they were communicating to their readers whether they presumed what they were saying was true or whether they presumed what they were saying was false. And when Paul wrote verse 23, he wrote it as a first-class conditional. He wrote it to show that he presumed that these things were true about his readers. Now this lessens any worry that it is possible to lose our salvation and therefore our standing with the Lord. Let me just say this clearly in case you haven't followed for the last 45 seconds. Verse 23 does not open any door to any possibility that someone who has truly repented, someone who really has trusted the promises of God for them in Christ, it doesn't open any door for them to lose their salvation. Having said that, if it is true that the true believer will persevere, then you and I must persevere. God indeed holds us, but we must live a life that is held. Boy, this is tension, isn't it? This is one of those things that we have to deal with. You must look. You must see, no matter how imperfect it is, evidence in your heart that you in fact remain in the faith. If you're the kind of person that has no qualms of spitting in the face of Jesus, well, then you just well may not be saved. It is God who keeps you. It is God, it is in God keeping you that your hope should lie, not in your abilities, not in your stunningly handsome lack of hair or anything else. What we trust in, what we put our hope in, is the good news, is the fact that He keeps us. Therefore, we must be kept. If you are saved, you will find hope in the fact that you are growing in your knowledge of the promises and your trust in them. I don't put my hope of heaven in the fact that I prayed a prayer. Part of what I put my hope for is that when I sin, when I do spit in the face of Jesus, I run to him and say, forgive me, Lord. And he receives me. And I know this because of his word. You too can hope in the good news. We can hope in the good news because we know that it is God who keeps us. But verse 23 is also one of those difficult verses for another reason. Now, the Bible has many hard sayings, difficult passages, things that at first glance we look at them and we kind of walk away scratching our head. In fact, anybody who says they have every answer about every passage, they're lying to themselves and they're lying to you. Run. Don't walk away. But... What we usually find when we come to terms with these difficult passages, when we ask the Lord to show us what is going on there, what we find is there is some glorious gospel truth. 
Something that you and I need so that we can see the glory of the great God who loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And this passage is no different. So what is the difficulty here? The difficulty is in verse 23 where Paul says the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Another way of seeing the problem is to ask the question, has the Great Commission already been fulfilled? Was it fulfilled before the first century? The end of the first century? Well, let's examine this. Let's look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission is what Christians call this passage because Jesus is commissioning all believers all over the place all the time to go and make disciples. And he tells us two things. He tells us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if these promises extend throughout all the earth and throughout all time, it would make sense then that the command to go and make disciples also extends all over the earth and at all times. But there are those who find this a difficult passage. What I have to say to that is there is no significant portion of the Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church that has ever thought that. There are Christians who say, oh, well, Christ came in 70 AD. There are people who say that. Um, I don't think they have a leg to stand on. It is also conceivable, if we're dealing with the difficulty, it's conceivable to say that Paul is speaking in a manner that you've heard uh, Pastor Benji and Pastor I, myself, talk about this, this tension of the already, not yet. In other words, Paul is looking forward in the future and he sees that all the earth will have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And because he is so sure that God is going to do this, he can speak with confidence, it's done. It's there. It's, it's, we, we don't need to worry about that. But you have to come to these difficult passages and experience this tension. As I said a moment ago, if anyone claims to have all the answers about every question in the Bible, they're kidding themselves or they're lying to you. There is tension. There are passages that, you know, holy smokes, I'm not sure exactly what to make out of this. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's pray and ask the Lord Jesus to show us what he's trying to communicate and with humility go to the word and say, yes, Lord, I need to understand this. And this tension is a good thing because it draws us in to the Lord and He pulls us along and we get to know Him better 
We, we see him as a trustworthy God, even if we don't understand everything he says. We see him as a beautiful God, even if we don't get every nook and cranny of what is going on. So with this in mind, let me give you another passage so that you kind of understand this tension that we're dealing with. In John chapter 6, we get to what I believe is the most difficult of the difficult passages in Scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, to all the people who are following him, hundreds of people, he says, unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you are not one of mine. Oh, that's disgusting. What? What is going on? Jesus, oh my goodness. In fact, a lot of people said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? I'm out of here. Why would Jesus say something like that? Jesus would say something like that to smack you awake. To bring you out of your consumeristic slumber. To wake you up out of this Facebook finding out who, which politician said this, that, and all this other fake garbage news. What you need, what I need, is good news. And we need to be shocked sometimes. We need to be scandalized sometimes so that we realize that what we're chasing after is not what we need. We need to hope not in who controls Congress or the presidency or any of that. We need to hope in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the President of Presidents. We need to hope in the one who tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood because he knows we need to hear the message, draw close to me, I am what you really need. Or as it is said in the Old Testament, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Similarly, Paul may have written this passage in Colossians 1.23 to catch our attention, to wake us up as we're reading along and just kind of letting the words go under our eyeballs. What? What, what does that mean? Help me understand this. Well, I told you, every difficult passage is covering a glorious gospel truth. Something that as we come to know it, we will know the great God that much better and therefore we will love Him and trust Him more. What is it that is hidden here? The glorious gospel truth is that the good news applies to everyone, everywhere. No matter what you have done, no matter what you haven't done, you too can hope in the good news. No matter where you've been, no matter what you have avoided, you can hope in the good news, it applies to everyone, everywhere. And you can hope in the good news. 
Paul wants us to understand that rather than just some parochial God who is above one nation at one point in history, Paul wants us to see that the good news is enough for everyone to hope in. So spread it. Go out. Hope in it yourself so that you can show others what it looks like to hope, however imperfectly. Nobody's got all their ducks in a row. Nobody's got everything together. But you, in your imperfect, sinful, finiteness, finitude, can go out and show people hope that the final answer is not your alienation, but it can be the reconciliation of the great God who loves you and will never leave you nor forsake you. If there are those who remain who do not know Him, then the Great Commission is for you to go out and spread this hope so people will see the great and glorious God who loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. Hope in the good news. Now fortunately, Colossians 1.23 is not over yet. This hope in the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. You don't understand, Pastor. I've sinned too much. You don't understand. I'm not very eloquent. I'm not really smart enough. I don't know all the ins and outs of all these things. Oh my goodness, it just gives me a headache. Oh, I can't go out and be a part of the hope of the gospel for the nations? Listen, Paul was a murderer. Paul was the kind of dude that if he knew you were a Christian, he'd take sticks and beat you with them and then drag you to court. Paul was the kind of guy that blasphemed Christ left and right every chance that he got. Paul was the kind of guy who would go to other cities, travel days and days and days to get there just so he can drag your Christian rear end back to Jerusalem to string you up. That's the person that Jesus ripped out of his sinfulness and brought him in to the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have not sinned so much that you cannot be saved. You have not turned away and spit in His face so much that you cannot be saved. And you, Christian, have not sinned so much that you can't be the instrument of, straight, of bringing that hope to those who are around you. You may be the only Christian this person knows. So hope in the good news so they can too. Go and learn this good news. Open God's Word so that you can drink it and absorb it because it is so much better than anything you will find on the news. This indeed is good news. And it is what our world needs. Hope in the good news and help others do the same.